Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I'm Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. On this show, Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com, joins me. We talk about whether Florida should consistently employ a press, why that sometimes doesn't work at the Power 5 level, the arguments for and against, why we think Florida can be vastly improved on defense, defense without a press. Also, we answer your listener questions on defense, rotations, who should start at the two, the UF-Florida State rivalry, owned by the Seminoles, of course, in the white era, and a bunch of recruiting insider notes and off-season development notes. Finally, uh, we take time to pay tribute to John Thompson Jr., a coaching man well ahead of his time. Hope you enjoy the show. It's a long one, uh, so make sure you uh, strap in and leave us a rating um, at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you can find Florida Basketball Hour. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. I'm joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Eric, uh, I feel like it's been a while, even though it really hasn't. It's just that we were doing a lot of shows all at once. How are you? Yeah, it feels like it's been a little while, but hey, uh, recording these are always the highlight of my week or uh, whatever whatever increment it is between the time that we record. So, uh, so this is fun, and I'm just so glad that... Uh, once again, everyone tuning in. So glad that there's an appetite for for uh, for Gators basketball talk, even if we're not totally sure when the next uh, the next ball is going to be tipped. Uh, we're just so happy that there's uh, there's great fans here that are uh, ready to talk some Gators hoops. So on one of our last shows, I think it was the one before Blake. So uh, with Matt, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the recent press conference that that Mike White had where he said, you know, playing fast is in his DNA. It's what I want to do. The full quote was, I feel like for the first time we have a high level of speed, quickness, and athleticism from our whole roster. I think we'll be very deep. We look forward to playing fast, pressing, and just playing to our strengths. And so we had a discussion on this podcast about that and then fielded a host of questions from listeners about, oh, you think Florida will play faster offensively in particular, but some of that I think definitely uh, applied to, to defense and whether Florida would press with this personnel. And I know it's a conversation we had, but I thought uh, as often as the case, you kind of deliver this masterful article about uh, why, you know, Florida, Florida might not want to press all the time. Uh, well, you know, masterful was an exaggeration, but I appreciate it, Neil. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, it was interesting because uh, this is kind of a trend of, of something that uh, for people who read my work uh, or maybe just listen to the podcast, you'll know that I that I do this often. What I do is if, uh, if Florida is trying a particular style, if they're doing something, um, I want to look at the rest of the world at college basketball, look at recent history and say, hey, is this a viable strategy based off what we have seen in the, in the past? So uh, when Florida, or sorry, when Mike White says, hey, we're going to be a pressing team, uh, the natural thing for me to do was, hey, let's look at other similar teams and say, hey, are they going to, uh, has pressing been, uh, has pressing been a viable strategy? Because, hey, if it has been a viable strategy, then 
then great. I, uh, we should be very excited for it. And if not, um, perhaps we should have some pause. So uh, that made me, uh, that sent me to just go simply look at high major basketball teams last season and, and look to see how much teams were pressing and did they have success? And uh, it was something that I teased really quickly on another podcast saying that like, Oh, I actually think that I looked at the numbers and actually I think pressing is going to be a good option because some of these, a lot of these teams have lower numbers uh, playing, playing press or they have better defensive numbers pressing than playing in that traditional half court defense. And while that is true in some cases, uh, the more I looked at the numbers, the more I kind of saw that that wasn't totally an accurate way of exclusively looking at the the equation. So, for example, uh, it, it was shocking just how few possessions around high major basketball the press is used, which kind of already makes you say, hey, if if the pressing really was a viable strategy, you wouldn't see so few teams doing it. And, and even the teams that do do it, uh, there's only a few that you could really say, you know, this is a pressing team which I, I would kind of classify as, hey, do they play half of their defensive possessions pressing or or, or more? Uh, that would be something that uh, would kind of classify a, a pressing basketball team to me versus a team who presses <laughs> for whatever that distinction is worth. And yeah, just just looking at the numbers, it's uh, it hasn't worked out for a lot of teams. A lot of the teams that were better pressing than than in the half court, a lot of them were not great half court offense or sorry defensive teams. So. Yeah, just uh, no matter how I looked at it, it, it was tough to make an argument based off the college basketball world um, that would say, hey, pressing is going to be the best option for this for this Florida team. And uh, I, I guess the question is, um, you know, do I think that they should press at all? Uh, yes, I definitely think they should. Uh, I guess for me, the whole thing is just uh, when, when White says, hey, this team is we're going to get like this is going to be a pressing basketball team. That that's what kind of has me a little bit. That's what gives me a little bit of pause because I think there's a difference between a team that presses occasionally based off the matchup, and the team that uh, that we are a pressing team. Like we are going into a game knowing that we're going to press, and our opponent knows we're going to press. So uh, yeah, that was that was kind of some of my findings. Yeah, it's one thing that stuck stuck out to me. I cannot talk anymore. We've been in quarantine so long. Um, <laughs> one thing that stuck out to me was. This laundry list, which, you know, I would include Mike White uh, for the most part uh, of coaches that really just, you know, press teams into the ground when they were mid-majors and have either abandoned the press altogether or tried it and it didn't work or, you know, pivoted into something that's sort of a hybrid of it. Uh, I guess the hybrid would really be Shaka Smart, right? But, But I think... You know, Will Wade, LSU, we saw them press a couple times like when they were way behind. And, and, and it was so interesting in that example because LSU doesn't defend at all. So, like, you kind of wonder why they don't press because um, at least it's something. Uh, but, but other guys that you mentioned, Brad Brunell and those great Stephen F. Austin teams, uh, I think you mentioned Andy Infield, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and so – that was just really interesting because, you know, none of them have really returned to pressing with the exception of in spots with Wade. And, and I, again, Shaka has kind of done what Mike won. Like they have a 13 press that they play sometimes, but uh, you know, you probably dove into the, the, the synergy numbers more than, more than I have. So it'll be interesting to see what Florida does with this personnel set. Uh, yeah. A couple of things there. I mean, 
first of all, yeah, Will Wade. Uh, so, you know, they pressed a little bit and kind of uh, <laughs> they helped out the numbers of high major teams that pressed. But let's not forget <laughs> that they were the 179th ranked defensive team uh, in Ken Palm last year. So using them as a barometer of what you want your team to be defensively, uh, they are an outlier. They are like, yes, they press. They press more they did than they have since Will Wade has been at LSU, but, uh, but they were terrible. So, you know, let's take that for what it's worth. Um, and yeah, I, I'm glad you noticed that because I, I almost thought I, w- I was close to adding like, like nine or 10 more names onto that list and just making it like kind of one of those, like, it's so stale that it's funny as I, as I keep naming off coaches and, and their new programs where they don't press anymore. Uh, but yeah. I, but I wasn't the tone I was looking for in that article, but uh, something you did mention at the end there uh, is that, uh, Florida will be equipped to press. And that that's one thing that when I was looking at teams that were pressing, uh, there are some teams that press that weren't, that did not have the perfect personnel for it. Whereas Florida, I, I don't think Florida has the perfect personnel for it. And I will push back on people who say that they, they do because there's a lot of people out there that are like, Oh, this team's perfect for pressing. They've got to press. I, I will push back on that. Um, but Florida is, is going to be fair, you know, quite well equipped to press. So uh, for that reason, well, yes, I should make that should put them on a different pedestal than than some of these other teams that I was looking at, uh, just because they do have more length, more athleticism, more foot speed. But uh, but still, like just kind of the the overarching point of the article and the overarching point that I want to make is that if Florida is going to press a lot and do it successfully. Um, they are going to be swimming upstream and doing something that not any other high major basketball teams of Florida's caliber of, of what the caliber they're hoping to be um, have done. The teams that have pressed a lot or were mediocre teams in their leagues. And that's something that, that we have seen in recent there, you know, there's some good teams that have pressed a good amount. There's, there's not a lot of great teams. And if Florida wants to be a great team and, and press a whole lot, that that is going to be doing something that no other, that no great high major team has done in, in recent history. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. And, and, you know, so, so this kind of strikes a chord with, with the listeners that are probably somewhat disgruntled by hearing this, you you know, I would add that, that Billy Donovan is a great example of someone that deployed a high pressure system. And I know that everybody says, well, Louisville got away with it. Right. And they did, Um, you know, there are, there are actually people who think it kind of hurt Rick Pitino in recruiting. Uh, to Louisville, like, you know, and, and some say, well, it was really Calipari. But there are some people that think systematically, like, kids didn't necessarily want to do that because they don't do that in the NBA, and it was a negative recruiting point for for big-time coaches. That's a whole different conversation for a not-Florida podcast, probably. But it's interesting that, you know, Patino's protege, Donovan, kind of didn't do what what Rick did, like he stopped pressing at Florida more or less um, before they won their, their first national championship. Certainly the O fours were capable of playing pressure uh, with, with Corey Brewer and, and Joe Kim Noah, who was deceptively good at getting up and down the floor um, and, and guys like that, but they had small guards. Torian green wasn't terribly quick. Uh, you know, so Lee Humphrey certainly wasn't going to be your, your prototypical press or press guard. Uh, so, so they kind of went away from that after a series of first round, first weekend exits. Uh, and, and it never really came back at Florida. Um, so, you know, Donovan, an example of, of it that kind of should hit home to our listeners, I think. 
and I know it wasn't too long ago since uh, since Patino stopped coaching in college. Uh, we'll see. Maybe, hey, uh, Iota could be a great place to bring the press back. That's the leagues where pressing a lot works in, in college basketball at those kind of levels. But uh, the thing was, even back when Patino was having his best years, if you were playing a full court press and your defense broke down, you, oftentimes you had numbers going towards the rim. You had three on two or, or a two on one, and it was putting pressure on a shot blocker or, or you know, your two back guys uh, to try to cover up the rim. Uh, obviously, that's going to happen still. But nowadays, if you're playing a full court press and it breaks down, and this is something we saw when Florida was trying to do that uh, extended one three one pressure that uh, a little bit more two years ago than last year, but because uh, it was not good when when Florida was using it, was if you're playing a full court press in 2020 and things break down, you're giving up a wide open corner three, and that's just uh, that's just a that's giving up a wide open corner three is about the worst thing you can do in in basketball right now. So I think that that's also just the way that, that, that the style of play has changed in college basketball has, has just really, that's been another thing that has really, uh, yeah, they're like, there was like even these West Virginia teams that really love to press a few years back, they were really content to have Sagabal Kanate back there or uh, <laughs> whatever, which one of their shot blockers. And they would say like, Hey, if our, if our press breaks down, um, people will be funneled towards him and he'll protect the rim. Well, if it's spaced out to two wide open sh- three point shooters in the corner, uh, there's just no way to defend against that. If, if your press breaks down and uh, that's just what makes what's what makes pressing really tough these days. In addition to uh, ball handlers are getting, uh, more and more talented every year. Um, the way the game is being officiated is also letting ball handlers do a lot more than uh, than you could a few years ago in terms of uh, what's called a carry and what's not. And that uh, has pretty impl- big implications when you're trying to dribble through or move around a press. And uh, yeah, it's just, once again, it's just really tough for me to imagine and I know this is semantics and some people are just going to roll their eyes about what's the difference between a team that presses and a pressing team. Um, I think Florida should be a team that presses from time to time. I do not think they should be a pressing team. And I, like maybe that, I hope that distinction from is made clear. Like I think that Florida should press 10% of the time, not 30. They should not be pressing half of their possessions. I don't think because that just is not, proven to be effective like like let's get biblical let's get scriptural i think the gator should be in the press but not of the press um i just uh (laughs) uh, but uh yeah that what what do you say neil no i'm with you i think that's a uh i like it i like this uh this way of of talking about it and looking at it i think is is really good and and yeah i mean i look I think they have some personnel. You know, I was interested in what you said about them not having perfect pressing personnel because that might be something we want to explain to listeners more because I agree with you and I don't think I need to spend a ton of time on on that concept. Like, yeah, I think 10 to 15% of possessions uh, throw in some press wrinkles at people, particularly with like Scotty Lewis, Niels Lane, Anthony Derucci, players like that, that that are capable of doing it, I think, really well. Uh, if, if there's a rotation that involves them, then sure. But, but, you know, expand on that thought a little bit. Sure. I, and I alluded to this, uh, or talked about it on a podcast uh, prior, but I, I think that oftentimes you get teams like the Gators or something similar that have a lot of really athletic long wing players. And people say, Hey, look, look at Scotty Lewis and Keontae Johnson and Anthony Deruji and Osayo Sifo and, uh, and Omar Payne. And they say like, look at that length and athleticism. That's a team that's perfectly suited to press. 
the thing about pressing, and, and I know it, it, it could depend a little bit on, on how the team plays it, but it, it's really not your threes and your fours that are going to be in premium positions to press. It's going to be your point guard and your shooting guard. So if Florida is rolling out um, the predicted started starting one and two that I think a lot of a lot of people have. I know it's going to be a little different depending on who you ask, but I think it's fairly safe to say that Tyree Appleby and Noah Locke will be playing a lot of minutes and therefore a lot of minutes together. Uh, if you're playing maybe a, a typical, you know, two, two, one press or, or the, the, the run and jump press that, that white used a lot at Louisiana tech, uh, it, it's going to rely on those two guards covering a lot of ground and taking away a, a lot of the passing angles with their, with their hands up as they go to attack the ball. So, you know, Appleby has great speed, but not great length. Noah Locke, not super long, not super fast or athletic. So, it, you could they could be out there with Scotty Lewis and Anthony Drugi and Keontae Johnson and those it, it's great that they have those athletes and that'll be you, that helps a little bit but uh, it's really your top guys of, of the press that often have the hardest role so it's just not going to matter if Florida has the perfect small forward power forward and center on the Florida press if their shooting guard and, uh, and point guard aren't ideal pressing players uh, that's that's kind of my observation and and again I still think Florida is going to be a or they, I still think they have the personnel to be a good pressing team. Um, of course, they can put out lineups that are perfect, but uh, I, they, there's some people that you know are tweeting at me and tweeting at Neil and saying like, "Hey, this team is literally the perfect pressing team." And and I would just say no because if you're going to be a perfect pressing team, it's your point guard and your shooting guard. Uh, those those are going to be the players that are that are going to be perfectly suited to a press. And uh, I just don't look at Florida's kind of group of Tyree Appleby, Noah Locke, you know, Quez Lover, like uh, man, definitely, especially now that he's had his growth spurt, uh, he could definitely <laughs> be in that role if you play Scotty. Lewis of the two like yeah that that's definitely gonna change things but but yeah looking at Tyree Appleby looking at Noah Locke looking at Quez Glover I I just I, I don't see those as perfect pressing players not to say they can't press I just want people to cool off with the like this is a perfect pressing team take yeah no that's good uh it's a good explanation and kind of something I was hinting at with that the, the O4s were sort of built like that too <laughs> and, and, and you know Billy Donovan had built this team and it was clear from the way that he constructed it that that it wasn't an ideal pressing team, and and they didn't press a whole lot, and you know, so it's not something that's done in big time college basketball as much anymore. And and Florida should continue to deploy it sparingly, I think. Um, so, you know, that does segue into I think we've been we've done this so many different ways, Eric, where we like have a whole segment on listener section questions. And I, I don't want to get away from that too much, but I did like the idea of of peppering in a uh, a dash of a dash of listener question on the um, press thing, and and that would be, you know, let let's talk about this question from uh, Cal Chehan where he asked, uh, "Will Florida be better defensively this year uh, than they were last year?" obviously very frustrating that they couldn't get stops at times. Well, uh, my first, you know, half joking, uh, let's <laughs> get a little bit of humor is like, could Florida get any worse? I mean, obviously 60, I mean, 61st wasn't terrible. It's really, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, like I, I was someone very critical of the defense, this podcast critical of the defense, uh, you know, like, you know, they were 61st and LSU was, in the one eighties for most of the season and ended in the one seventies, like Florida, while it wasn't a great defensive team, obviously um, 
it, it wasn't bad. But I mean, you, you just look at the other years under under White and it's, yeah, it's 16th the year prior, 24th the year before, fifth before that. Uh, and then and then his first season in Florida, 14th. So you look at how how good these teams have been under White and under the, his coaching staff, um, even though in a couple of those seasons, they did not have a lot of great defensive players. White still found a way for them to be really good defensively. So I think you look at um, you look at his pedigree over these last years and it's there's a bay. This team is closer to a top 25 defensive team. Um, actually, well, to be honest, a top 15 defensive team than it is a 61st strength defensive team. Yeah. So for that reason, I'd already say, well, I do think Florida is going to be better. Um, you look at uh, whatever you want to say, the addition by subtraction. I think that Kerry Blackshear was uh, the player who struggled the most defensively for the Gators last year. And I think he plays a position that um, having strong defensive play is a premium. So it hurt florida even more um so so that's going to be a change without without blackshire on the roster i think you add deruji to the mix and i think he's going to be a great defender and the other thing too is uh young teams often don't defend very well uh florida was very young last year and they're returning a lot of pieces and are not going to be young anymore so that should also inherently say well this team is likely going to be better defensively so uh yeah that's that's a few of the reasons why i do think florida is going to be a good defensive team if not great yeah, no, I, I, you know, I like that too. And I think another reason that they'll now be an even more uh, effective defensive team is that Colin Castleton got a waiver. And, and I'm not calling Colin Castleton the second coming of Kavarius Hayes. But let me hear me out on this. Okay. Uh, I am saying that I think that the ability to be versatile with your front court is very valuable. Uh, particularly defensively, because you can you can throw a lot of looks at people. We saw Mike White do a little more junk defenses than than he was used to last year, I think. And I think some of that was, hey, how do we get stops? Um, but I think this year you kind of have your classic rim protector type player in in Omar Payne. You have a different kind of problem defensive big in Jason Jatobo, and then with Castleton. Uh, you're going to have a guy who's a little fleeter of foot uh, and obviously the monstrous wingspan, Eric. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was one that was uh, – I, I, there was a picture circulating. You know, Malik Grady found one as well, good friend of the show. Uh, and it was – I I forget what it was. It was just some of the Michigan players um, uh, standing next to someone seated and uh, and Colin Castle had his, had his hand on the chair and his arms just looked like it looked just looked like he was across the room and his hand was extending all the way to this chair. Uh, so anyways, <laughs> I, I, I showed the picture to, uh, to Colin and, and said, Hey, out of curiosity, what's your wingspan? He said, Oh, I think it's about uh, seven foot three. <laughs> uh, so that was before that was before he got on campus. So it's probably been measured since. I don't think those have been posted anywhere. Um, the guy who will know is Malik Grady. Um, he's all over that stuff, but, uh, uh, yeah, so seven foot three uh, wingspan for uh, I know he did measure six eleven, so uh, yeah, very long Castleton is, and and his rim protection numbers were really good. Like he's definitely not the Kavarius Hayes or Omar Payne, um, jump through the roof show just like great timing to meet the ball at its apex, uh, but he is just super long and uh, is a strong positional defender and he can move his feet. Well, like you mentioned, Neil, so I, that makes him a good rim protector. Um, and while he hasn't played a lot of minutes in his two seasons of college basketball, um, the numbers when he is on the floor, protecting the rim are, are really good. And, and one thing I do really like from watching him play when I, 
started really getting into him when he committed to Florida was uh, when he started his college career, he played for John Beeline, much like uh, uh, assistant uh, Darius Nichols. And uh, in his system, he's always known for, for, you know, hard hedging pick and roll, something that, that Florida likes to do. Uh, so that's obviously being, being very active. The big needs to move his feet. He needs to start sending that ball handler back towards, uh, back towards center court before, you know, sprinting back to his man, taking away the paint. So, uh, so he started his college career playing that style of defense. And then uh, Beeline moves on. And then Juwan Howard comes into town. Well, Juwan Howard comes from the NBA where everyone plays drop coverage. And he brought drop coverage to Michigan. And Castleton had to play that style of pick and roll defense. And I also thought it looked really good. He kind of, uh, his use of space, his understanding of um, how much he needed to wall off the paint versus how much did he want to uh, take away the, the ball handler and the ability to pull up. Uh, j- the way he kind of loaded up on his back foot so if there was a pass he could rotate to where he needed to and close out with those long arms uh, I thought he was really good so so that's just something that's super cool because you don't often see a college big that's had to play both hard hedging and drop pick and roll coverage and I thought he looked really good in both of them so uh, that's definitely encouraging for the Gators who had their screen and roll offense or sorry screen and roll defense not look very good and uh, we saw them wanting to hard hedge that's something that you know, is in White's DNA, I would say, defensively. And uh, I had to get away from it a little bit last year. But it's kind of like, hey, if they want to get back to doing that, I, I know Castleton's going to be able to to do well in it. And if they want to play more conservatively and drop, Castleton's going to be able to do that. So that's encouraging. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, that's all, you know, spot on. And it, it speaks to, look, the versatility in the front court was – I think it's interesting, you know, Castleton getting a waiver definitely changes things. It, it changes, um, it changes the, the kind of the outlook for Florida's front court. I think a lot. It also probably means that, you know, I, I'm not sure what role Osayo Sifo will carve out. It, it's unusual, certainly to think of a junior college player as coming in and redshirting. Um, I'm not going to predict that because who knows, but, you know, I think with, three sort of different types of bigs and and it's definitely a a rotations demand uh on the staff and something that hopefully they'll get figured out and and i think rotations uh, you know i write football articles as some of you know and and i think one thing that i've talked about in football is I, i i really feel like any podcast that i've been on any radio shows i've been saying i think the teams with veteran quarterback rooms are uh, really at an advantage and and so in basketball i think staffs that don't have to do a ton of tinkering with rotations are going to be at a bit of an advantage early on and so i do think that that will be a challenge for florida um, trying to figure out what front court rotation what front court sets work best what front court rotations work best but uh you know better to have to figure that problem out than to be really worried about your front court (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, to be able to bring in, uh, to be able to bring in multiple guys that are uh, not freshmen off your bench has been—that's uh, a luxury the Gators have not had. And I think that's again when you look at like just like the good teams of college basketball, you look at them take guys off the bench, enter the game, and uh, and they're veterans. And that's something that for Florida the last couple of years, it's been hey, they've needed freshmen to come off the bench and and make something happen. And now they've got you know they're gonna have sophomores, they're gonna have a third year player in Castleton, whether he starts or comes off the bench, uh, that is gonna be a luxury. And that's a lot of fouls to use in the front court if you if you need to um that's a lot of that's a drastically different 
look. Uh, it, it's also it's going to be a very different look when it goes from Castleton to Jatobo or uh, Castleton to Omar Payne or Omar Payne to Jatobo. It's 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 going to be interesting. And I mean, uh, I was really into obviously the uh, the lineup data that I referenced a lot in my writing and, and podcasts or on this podcast last year. And really, I mean, Florida didn't have. Like there's there's a pretty clear drop off from Florida's starters to to their bench, and for that reason, yeah. there wasn't like a ton of really interesting stuff to come from from looking at lineup data. I think this next year could be like an all timer for 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 lineup data, especially if it is something like an all SEC season. And I'm not trying to skew the conversation to that topic, uh, but if Florida's <laughs> just playing exclusively good basketball games and they've got all these good pieces that are coming off the bench and they're going to be using all these lineups. It's going to be really interesting to look at the data and say who, Hey, who are Florida's best lineups. And uh, again, it's just a luxury that this team has, has not really had since, uh, since the elite eight team. Yeah, no. And, and it's, it's certainly challenging. I, I don't think that that is something I do think the versatility helps them out offensively a little bit in the sense that, I'm not sure that this particular team's going to have to settle on a system as much, and I'm not be so set reliant as they were the last couple of years. There's a lot of other reasons for that, but certainly when you can play a bunch of different types of bigs, uh, if you do have to run sets, you can run a bunch of different sets. So again, uh, it really just expands the playbook offensively, and it gives Florida really two bona fide rim protectors. And then again, Jason Jatobo's big body, uh, you know, showed that that it could be a problem defensively uh, last year. J- Jason's defensive numbers were were I think kind of eye opening to, to both Eric and I, even though the sample size was pretty small. So uh, a good chance that the team uh, is much better on defense and and more versatile on offense. And usually uh, that means that you win more games. Um, so workouts have started. Summer workouts, Preston season, all that stuff going on uh some insider information i know i saw that you had dropped some insider notes for people and and i wanted to start with with sort of your comments now keep in mind we we can't see practices nobody can because of covid19 um it's insiders only but uh eric was was nice enough to give people some insight into some of the developments in the program let's let's just start where you started with trey man and uh the growth spurt but but more than that uh, well, uh, Chris Harry had a great article that, that laid out some of the stuff that, that I had been hearing. And uh, obviously the fact that he, he unfortunately tested positive for COVID and uh, something that, you know, if it hasn't hit home for, for people, I mean, there's, there's another face and another name you can, you can put to the virus. But uh, obviously that, uh, uh, that pushed him back a little bit in the offseason. But hey, he still, had a, he still had a busy one. And uh, that was one thing, too, that I, I know there were some people that uh, – kind of were laughing at the fact that he wanted to, that he stated that he put his name in the NBA draft. There's people who acted that he didn't immediately withdraw. Uh, People were kind of having some jokes about that and he kept his name in for as long as he really could. And uh, well, he uh, not even actually, but he kept it in for a while. And some people were still kind of, I don't know, didn't take that the right way, which I don't know. I, I always thought was a little bit, weird it's like hey the process is there it's it's there to be utilized and and man in his his camp um utilized it to the fullest extent and to me that's that's good for them and that's exactly what i would advise someone <laughs> but um uh, it was good to hear that yeah he uh, the, some of the teams that he that he did uh, have a workout with or sorry not a workout with he wasn't able to work out interviews with over over zoom it was you know, <laughs> Club city atlanta uh minnesota 
um, Philadelphia. So, so I mean, some there were teams that wanted to talk to him, and, and and I thought that was good, and I was happy to put that out there just because I do know some people where were kind of yeah, they were a little bit skeptical of why he entered the draft and why he kept his name in for so long. And it was kind of nice to say, Hey, uh, here is, uh, here are the teams that he talked with. And if you're talking to multiple NBA, NBA teams, then yeah, it's good that he went through the process. And I think he's going to be a better player as a sophomore because of it, because he got to have these conversations. And, and now I think that that's to be able to talk to those teams, um, I think that's going to really help a player like, like man say like, Hey, this is where, you know, I want to be here next summer talking to these teams, but in in person with a workout and I want to be in the mix for, to to get drafted. And, uh, that, that was something that, uh, definitely wanted to, to make a note of. And, uh, yeah, the fact that he definitely looks to have grown. I mean, obviously I, I was also, I was having my jokes when, uh, <laughs> when, when he tweeted that he was six, six, there's no question. I had a good laugh at that. Uh, but Hey, Hey, when you start seeing the, the pictures on Instagram of him next to, next to Scotty Lewis, and he looks taller than him or, or just as tall, uh, looks like a legitimate six, five, or, or, or I think that's what he's listed at. But, uh, for for someone who uh, you know, if he does start making shots off the dribble like he did in high school, if he starts to uh, if he starts to show some of those dribble combinations that can beat his man off the dribble that we start to see at the end of last season, uh, if we continue to see him being a strong positional defender and he's doing all that while being six five versus you know six two and a half, six three, whatever, which I, I know he measured like six two and a half in in uh, one of those, whether it's the McDonald's All American or something like that. So, uh, so for him to to do that, what much bigger? I mean, it's just another thing that points to something you and me think, and that's that he's going to have a really good sophomore season. Yeah, no, I I do think he's going to have an excellent sophomore season. Uh, and and he wasn't the only Florida player that that had a health scare. Uh, this summer related to the virus, freshman Niels Lane um, did not get COVID-19, but I guess was like quarantined because he was around someone with COVID-19. So Lane, as you put it in your article, has just had really awful luck. Like he goes from a player that was almost certainly going to be a consensus top 100 player, Eric, and a four-star to a three-star that that was what, like a hundred and he was in the top 150, but on the kind of edge of it in the 24-7 composite. Dropped down to a three-star, missed a lot of his senior year with Mono. Uh, but but has come in, and, and from what I understand, just been tremendous defensively, but shown a little better as like a secondary ball handler, which I think I'm sure is a, a pleasant surprise. Oh, definitely. Uh, I think that was definitely a little bit of his – reputation was hey this is gonna be one of the best defenders in the class offensively there was some some mixed some mixed opinions I guess and and when I from what I did see him play you know what I wasn't super sold and that's uh, something that I you know mentioned on this podcast will happily be wrong but there are definitely people who think that he should be a ball or he should be a point guard a ball primary ball handler at the college level which uh, when you look at college basketball there's that's a tough that's a tough role to play so uh, six foot five. He met, he weighed in at like 206 pounds and he looks chiseled, really muscular. If he can handle the ball and, and have some point guard abilities, I'm not sure if he's ever going to play point guard for this team, but, uh, obviously one of my great laments of the, the Gators over the last few seasons has been that they have not had it, 
much secondary ball handling at all. And I think that uh, to be a good modern basketball team, you need to have multiple ball handlers, multiple guys that can make plays, multiple guys that can put the ball on the floor and attack a closeout. And uh, to ha- if, if Lane can do that and he's a tremendous defender, uh, I mean, it's he, they're, they're going to need to find they're going to need to find minutes for him. Those guys need to play. And uh, that's got to be pretty exciting. And I definitely wish the best for him because he's just someone who has had uh, so much bad luck so far over this last you know year and a half for him. And uh, yeah, I just definitely wish him all the best. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm excited to see, to see what he can do on the court. Um, you know, there are, like you said, there are definitely people who think that he's uh, better offensively than, than, you know, some that's, that's a debate. Uh, and then another debate with the other freshman, Samson Resensev, that, that Eric and I had had was that I watched all this. And I, look, I watched all this video. I watched all this video of this dude shooting. And I thought it looked kind of weird. And I thought, I don't know, it's, maybe he's like a volume shooter. And I wasn't really sure that like a six seven wing with his athleticism should be a volume shooter. So it turns out that Eric, who was less concerned, uh, appears to to have to be the victor, at least in the early returns, because apparently Samson or Sensev is just shooting lights out. <laughs> so I am someone who's very high on Resensev shooting. Um, you know, some of his numbers were good. I mean, high school looking at someone's I like I kind of hate myself for even just saying that because I think citing high school percentages is yeah. not wise to do, whether it's uh, sloppy, incorrect stats being recorded, uh, <laughs> whether it's you have no idea what the quality of competition is at times. Right. It's just not. But, but you know, there was some events, especially some of the international events with FIBA, which I do find, which those are going to be infinitely more reliable than some high school stats. But he had some good numbers. But for me, it really was just, you know, looking at his form and, uh, and his release and saying like, hey, I, I believe in that as a shooter. I think he's got great form. However, seeing the videos that the Gators are putting up now of him shooting and his form is immaculate. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, his form looked good. Now it looks just exquisite. And um, everyone who's, you know, who I've talked to said he is shooting the lights out. And then uh, one thing I really liked about uh, White's press conference was, uh, I don't remember his exact quote, but he said that Samson, something along the lines of Samson Rusensev can knock down shots like Noah Locke. And then he kind of had to like walk it back because he's like, well, <laughs> Noah Locke might be, he didn't say this, but I, you know, I, Noah Locke could be one of the best shooters in the country this year. So, so yeah. White was like, well, I probably shouldn't put those kind of expectations on him. But um, for even in that split second for White to be like, oh yeah, like he's somewhere in the realm of, of Noah Locke as a shooter. Um, that obviously speaks to how good of a shooter he is. And uh, for, for being six foot seven to shoot the ball like that, that is incredibly encouraging. So you know what, this would not be the first time that we've heard that a player has shot well in summer workouts. And oftentimes a player who shoots good in summer workouts does not end up shooting well once, uh, once the lights are on and, and real games happen. But so happens, but man, when you look at his form, uh, you, I don't know how you don't believe in it. It's just, he, he shoots the ball just masterfully. Like his, his form just looks amazing. And he's six foot seven, so he's going to get that shot up with ease. And by all accounts, in summer, they're they're all going in. So uh, we'll we'll see we'll see how that affects me and Neil's um, mini competition between us about who plays more between Neil's Lane and Andersensev. <laughs> but uh, you know that's good. That's going to be much watch must watch uh, television right there is is uh, uh, the debate between me and Neil about who will get on the floor more. But uh, 
definitely been happy to see uh, to see such uh, such good stuff about uh, about Samson, who also by all accounts is is a great kid and someone who I've had a couple couple really good conversations with. So definitely someone who's easy to cheer for. Yeah, that's awesome. I, and a dashed in listener question from Sarah in Tampa will will fill out our insider notes. Uh, she says, last podcast. Neil said that a guy no one is talking about is Anthony Derugy. How has he been? I said, this is the perfect place to tee Eric up. <laughs> so uh, as the, uh, you know, Tyree Appleby expert, I've spent much of the last calendar year uh, talking about my <laughs> Tyree Appleby. There's, uh, and, and, and I mean, honestly, uh, I've, I've been probably a lot more excited about Derugy than I've let on just because, hey, I've, I've had to keep up the brand of being the, the Tyree Appleby expert. But, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've always been really excited for Derugy. And, and uh, there's been some people that, that have been able to see practice, especially during last year, during the redshirt year. And I've been like, hey, so, uh, you know, how are the how are the redshirts or sorry? Yeah. How are the redshirts doing? How are the how are the sit out guys? And um, everyone talks Derugy first. Uh, whenever I've talked to asked anyone. Um, it was always, um, and I don't know, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was cause they were, you know, coming in, uh, looking forward to watching Appleby more. And then it was just Drew who got their eye or maybe Drew was just that much better, but, but it just seems like not even in the off season, just going back to last year's practices, uh, people who were able to watch them said Drew looked fantastic. And, uh, that's been the case as well for, for these summer workouts. Uh, the most, pr- honestly, it's kind of funny. I mean, I think I'm not suggesting that he's had a better offseason than Keontae Johnson, but I've heard a lot more about Anthony Drugy than uh, than Keontae Johnson, and I don't think it's because he's better. I think that Keontae Johnson is just awesome and then is awesome in summer workouts, and people, you know, it's not – once you're awesome, people just expect it of you. And uh, But uh, with, with, with Drugy, there's been – there's just been uh, so much good said about uh, – honestly, a lot of about the way he passes the ball and handles the ball, which I think – he's someone who is just a, you know, an absurd athlete. We know that. So I think there's a lot of expectations of, Hey, he's going to run in transition. He's going to catch lobs. He's going to defend. He's going to rebound. Uh, but there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of talk about, Hey, he can, he can take some dribbles. He can uh, attack intelligently putting the ball on the floor. He's someone who passes the ball well and, and makes intelligent swings and, and can skip the ball well when he needs to. And um, that's really encouraging because uh, he seems to be a lot more than just an athlete. He's someone who really understands the game and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of returning players to be excited about. And when you can get it, there's a lot of, you know, the freshmen are easy to get excited about. And when you've got these sit-out transfers that are also looking uh, easy to be excited about. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's exciting times for Florida basketball. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that uh, it's interesting. I mean, Jay Billis said uh, on a podcast that I was listening to this week that he thought Florida's additions this year were, were arguably – more impressive than their top 10 recruiting class. And the podcast host kind of said, well, what do you mean, Jay? And he said, well, you have a top 100 freshman, but they add two all-conference upperclassmen. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's, that's an interesting – it's an interesting thought, especially when, you know, obviously Applebee's going to be relied on to start, but I think – the role for Anthony Derugi, at least initially, would appear to be sixth or seventh man. We'll talk about that a little bit in listener questions. Should we go recruiting or just dive into these listener questions? Uh, maybe recruiting quick and then back to back to listener questions. Okay, perfect. So, uh, quick recruiting updates. Um, you know, Florida's point guard board took a hit. Uh, they, they, I, th- I really think that 
you know, I'm always reluctant to say like their number one target because we, we don't, we're not, we don't know that for sure. But all accounts were that the guy that Florida really wanted was Tyrese Hunter. Um, they could not convince him to come that far from home. Uh, really don't, I don't think it came down to much more than that. Uh, Iowa State, uh, pretty close to Racine, uh, Wisconsin, where he's from. And I think in the end, uh, that was kind of the difference. So Florida's point guard fortunes for the 21, 20, 2021 class, Eric, have, have turned to Carter Witt. Pretty good insider information that I have indicates that, that he is now the top point guard on Florida's board. Uh, there is, from what I understand, Eric, a little bit of a, a debate about you know whether he guards enough for, for Mike White, the way Mike White wants his point guards to guard. Um, and, and that leads to the secondary question, which is where, you know, I think Eric uh, would be useful to chime in on the insider info that I had, which is that, you know, does Florida really need a point guard in the 2021 class? I mean, you know, they, they're going to get Kawasi Reeves, obviously. Uh, you could make the argument that Florida needs one more wing and a power forward type more than they need Carter Witt. And maybe they wait until 2022 and get a guy that they're convinced is the right fit. Uh, I don't think they need anyone uh, or not that they should just take an empty class. I don't think that there's any one position of need. That's like, Hey, you have got to take a name at this position. Uh, but uh, you know what? Like I can certainly see, like I was someone who think, like I do think Florida what uh, would have would be wise. I should when their board was totally full of names. I was like, yes, I definitely think they should take a point guard just because next year, like, hey, you know what? Um, Appleby is going to be able to grad transfer if he wants. Do I think that that's going to happen? No, but I just it's just something that's got to be that option needs to be talked about. Do uh, or do I think he's going to go pro? No, I don't. But like, hey, if he has a heck of a season and decides he just wants to go start his pro career, those are just things to be aware of. Uh, Trey Mann, he's someone who uh, I, I think he could very well could be gone after next year. Um, Quez Glover, someone who um, I'm not totally sure what he is as a player right now, and I'm not totally sure that Florida is going to feel comfortable if he ends up being there, having to play a key role for them. Uh, I mean, hey, we'll see after this year, but uh, it would, certainly would be nice and uh, kind of insurance to get a point guard in this class and and have him start developing in uh, what's hopefully not a role where he's really relied upon, but just uh, it just you know we've seen we've seen these Florida teams in the past that have not had enough point guards on the roster. And therefore, you know, they've really had massive drop-offs when it's went to their bench when it comes to point guards. And uh, for that reason, I do think it would be nice to have a point guard in this class. But I, I just don't think you should ever take a player just to take a player in that position. So if Florida is not sold on whoever they have the top, at the top of their board, it appears to be Carter Witt. But if they're not totally sold, then no, I, I don't think you should take a point guard just to take a point guard. I, I don't think that's the way classes should work, especially with the way that Florida has cooked on the transfer wire or the transfer yeah. market. I, I, I mean, I, I would never take a player because you feel that this class needs this position. I don't, I don't think the staff looks that way. Um, uh, but it'll just be interesting to say like, Hey, do, you know, do they like wit? Um, uh, Neil, I believe you once said Carter wit is not a take for me. Um, when we were, when we were joking about him, <laughs> I believe I might've, and I may have referred to him as, as uh, you know, great value, uh, Jason Williams or Costco white chocolate or something along those lines <laughs> may have come out of my mouth. But, um, uh, I, I will say, I know I just asked you the question. I'm still talking, uh, oh, after like watching it. him more, 
I have definitely grown to love him a lot more. Uh, I, it, it, it's one of those things that, you know, it's a, it's a tough line to walk uh, when you are a really flashy ball handler, a flashy score, uh, someone who plays that style. Um, it can be, uh, you know, you walk the line of being, hey, is this kind of a reckless player who you don't really want in your program? And, hey, is this someone who who does the, the, you know, the toughest thing to do in basketball is to create baskets out of nothing to be able to just make plays in space. That's the toughest thing to do in basketball. And, uh, Carter Witt might be that. So, uh, from watching him play to see, he's got, you know, he's up to six, three, he looks like he has good size. Uh, he plays with great toughness and that's something you don't always think about. Like, like, you know, a couple of years ago, watching him throw behind the back, no look passes, uh, try to put up ridiculous jumpers. Um, I don't think I would have classified him as a tough player back then, but now that I've watched more and listened to people who have watched him more, uh, toughness is a common trait. So I, I have grown to like him a, a lot more than I used to. And uh, whether I think that, you know, it's it's in, it's an absolute take, I mean, I, I don't know. And I can certainly understand the, uh, the defensive concerns, but I, I'm just interested in you. Know, has your opinion on him changed at all? I mean, you know, I, some of the people that I've talked to about him told me that that he's better than I than I think, basically. That that you know, we've seen him a bunch. He can really play. He's a playmaker. It's, you know, that he can play within a system. He just he's just a creative player, uh, and that's kind of what I was worried about. Um, that that I didn't really want the the idea of Costco white chocolate that much to be honest, um, you know. So if it was more Nicolaitis than than that, I would probably be okay with it. <laughs> I you know what honestly I think he's going to be a player that if the Florida doesn't get him, um, I'm not going to be heartbroken though. It's going to be interesting to see what he does when he does end up in college. Uh, but he is. Uh, but I'm going to be honest. If Florida gets him, uh, I'm going to be pretty excited just because he is a lot of fun to watch, and because uh, getting offensive creation is is a difficult thing to to get. That's a that's a tough trait that not a lot of basketball players have, and he's someone who has offensive instincts unlike anyone in the class, really. So uh, I, he's. You know what? If Florida loses him, I I, I can definitely. I'll, I'll be okay just because I do think there's a little bit of risk there. Uh, but if Florida gets him, I'm going to be all in. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, wit chocolate. Um, that'll be, that'll be the nickname. So uh, and, uh, we'll, we'll be all in on wit chocolate if he's a Gator, but um, if not, I, I'll look forward to watching him in someone else's Jersey. So uh, to the point I was making earlier, I do think Florida will need to sign another wing. I actually would say that that is a need. Um, and I, I think they're in a really good spot to get a guy who's going to be a top 50 wing in 2021 in almost any recruiting scenario. Uh, Alex Fudge out of Jacksonville, um, you know, top five for Alex at this point. Looks like um, it's going to be Texas, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, or LSU. Um, You know, I think there's a strong ass chance that LSU drops off. Um, here in the future um, for, for various reasons. If they don't, I don't think Florida wants to be interested in Fletch anymore. <laughs> be my guess. If he's staying involved with LSU, that's not someone White wants to, wants to get involved with. Uh, yeah. Antoine Petway, who has been in a bunch of articles as one of the real up-and-coming assistants, sort of the, the uh, Darius Nichols of, of, of – uh, NATO to staff. I can't talk. I can't think. 
what is the matter with me tonight? Um, Wait, was it, what was that name? Antoine Petway. Okay. Gotcha. And, Bri- and Brian Hodgson uh, are two big-time assistants on Alabama staff. And they are tasked with, uh, with the recruitment of, of Mr. Fudge at Alabama. Um, he's a big priority because Alabama is going to lose pretty much all the wings on their roster um, <laughs> in about nine months. I really think it's going to end up being a Florida or Alabama thing. Um, I understand that, you know, Tom Crean is, is a smooth talker in the living room, but like, I don't know. I don't, I don't like negative recruiting. You guys that listen have listened for a long time know that, but I mean, it'd be hard to want, like hear Tom Crean in the living room and then hear him at a press conference after his teams lose. <laughs> and and uh, Texas is another one with just a shaky coaching situation where you're not really sure who you'd necessarily be committing to, which is why I think this shapes up to be Florida or Alabama. Florida has done a pretty darn good job keeping uh, elite talent in state um, or players with significant Florida ties in state unless they go to FSU. FSU is kind of on the outside looking in in this recruitment. Omar Payne is a good friend of Alex Fudge. They were travel teammates in AAU. Just a lot of things trending in Florida's direction here. Yeah, I, I for lack of a better, for, for lack of a better term, I'm just like surprised that his final schools aren't uh, aren't better. Just because uh, you know, there's obviously some good programs there, uh, but like you said, I mean, you know, a little bit of shakiness in some of these some of these coaching staffs and some of the programs left there. So uh, that's a little bit weird for someone who I think is just a right. really skilled player with good size at a position that everyone wants. But uh, hey, that's got to be good for good for the Gators, and I think that that would be. Uh, uh, like I said, I don't think that any any position is like you know you absolutely need just because. Uh, the Gators have been pretty active on the transfer market, but man, wings are tough to get. We know that. And if there is a position where you, uh, you want to, you want to say they need someone, I, I would, I would have to agree with you, Neil. As soon as you said, um, as soon as you said, Oh, I do think they need to take a wing. I was like, Oh yeah, they probably do. <laughs> as much as I just said that I don't think position. <laughs> you can just never have enough wings. And um, for, for them to hopefully get a wing uh, like Alex Fudge, a top 50 player with, you know, offensive upside, great size, uh, just, perfect for the modern game. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to see why, uh, why, you know, he's one of their top targets. Yeah. And one, one name that uh, one school that I didn't mention in that, in the top five that Alex had, had, uh, dropped, um, was that was Maryland. And that was one that both the people I talked to about Alex this week said, you know, Mark Tershot is around, uh, that they've had the zoom conversations in the contact period that they'd really like to get him on campus for a visit. Now, that's the kind of program that would frighten you a little bit, to be honest, um, just because, you know, Terzan really kind of has things rolling at Maryland now, and, and there's a lot of stability there. Obviously, it's a bit of a basketball school. You know, I don't know if there's going to be how many fans there's going to be, right? But if, if, if in, the, in a world where there's full buildings ever in 2021, you know, that's, that's the kind of visit you can lock a kid in because Alex – I think is a guy who's going to commit in, in the spring as opposed to the fall period. Yeah. That's a, that's always interesting to see because it's a little bit different obviously now in, in 2020 versus even, you know, five years ago when players want to commit and, and a lot of them are willing to take it a little bit deeper in the cycles. So 
uh, it's yeah, keeping track of, of when players want to commit and, and when a team is willing to take a commit. Always interesting, but uh, I think that that Alex Fudge is someone the Gators will uh, will will wait around a little bit if if need be. Uh, because, yeah, there's just not a lot of names left on their board generally, and uh, they're definitely honing in on, on a guy like Fudge who uh, <laughs> I know we've just said that we shouldn't, we don't always want to toss around the uh, top name on the board, but uh, I'd have to say that he appears to be the top name on Florida's board. Yeah, he really does look that way. Uh, another guy on Florida's board, football-wise, leads to our next listener question, which is uh, from Peyton Mitchell. Is Mike White actively recruiting Terry and Arnold? Um, I'll tell you this, uh, <laughs> uh, the night before, you know, a few hours before, uh, uh, before they were allowed to, uh, officially offer players from his class, he was DMing me on Twitter saying like, Hey, is, is Florida going to offer me in a couple hours? Uh, sorry. Is the, is the basketball staff going to offer me in a couple hours? Uh, so he was, uh, you know, you don't often see those dual sport guys seem to really care that much about the basketball side, but he made it very clear. He wanted a basketball offer. It wasn't just like, uh, Hey, you know, I want to walk on a basketball and I want to, you know, hoop when football season's done. Um, he takes basketball seriously. He takes pride in that style of the, that, uh, you know, he takes, he takes pride in on the court. It's not just like a, something he does on the side when he's not playing football. Um, it does seem like Florida's recruiting him. I, I I will say this: I watched a little bit of uh, the film that was available of him on the basketball side. Um, maybe not someone I would ever project as an impact player in the high major <laughs> level. Uh, much better on the football side, I'd say. But uh, you know what? Hey, if it if it turns out that Florida's walk on basketball rotation ends up being you know Alex Klatsky, who had a who had low major. Uh, offers to play legitimate ones and you have jack may who's six four and dusty may's son <laughs> and uh was a pretty good high school basketball player in the state of florida and then you've got uh you know a five-star safety who has that athleticism and those are your walk-ons i mean that's pretty cool so uh, uh i just don't that's that's kind of my way of saying i don't exactly know how to say is Florida recruit uh, basketball recruiting him? Because I'm sure that they'd love to help out the football program. I'm yeah. sure they'd love to have him as a walk-on, um, but he's not good enough. Like Florida would not be offering him if he was not, they would not be offering him a basketball scholarship. I'll, I'll say that much. So uh, that's kind of my long-winded way of saying, um, hey, Terry and Arnold has had direct contact with the coaching staff and they talked to him fairly quickly after they were allowed to contact players from his class. Um, but yeah, yeah, maybe his his best work is done on the gridiron. Yeah, no, I, I think that they, they definitely are going to do everything they can to help the football staff get him on campus. And if that means he gets the Cornelius Ingramit around a while with the basketball program, you know, so be it. I think that's fantastic. Uh, so, but it's definitely, it's definitely a guy that, that is, going to be involved in whatever class Florida signs uh, here if, if he comes to play football. Um, Bill Wiles asked, uh, what's up with Noah Locke? Well, we know that uh, it was it, this wasn't as big of a story as I would have expected, but we know in his freshman season he had the uh, the hip problems that really hurt his ability to play defense, especially. And uh, it, it appears they continued to persist through this last year because he he had surgery this off season, and uh, it was only a, you know it was only a few weeks ago that he was able to really get back to uh, to basketball activities and uh, and get back starting to get in shape and and, and playing again and that's uh, that's pretty wild but for anyone who knows about hip injuries like that's not a 
that's not a uh, it, it's not an unserious injury anything hip related is is a big deal and we saw just how much having a hip injury hindered him on the basketball court where he struggled to play defense and had to kind of adjust his shooting form uh, and i really think that shows just what a tough player he is and, and what a competitive yeah. person he is that he was able to play through that uh but yeah had 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 surgery and has been uh been working to get back and by all accounts is, is still looking good but i was able to talk to his his trainer that uh um, you know, Malik Grady, referencing him again on this podcast, uh, found found the tweet where, uh, you know, one of his this trainer that was working with him back home um, was talking about yeah him getting back to the court after uh, after his uh, after surgery. And I, I, I spoke to the trainer and he's like, yeah, like that's a pretty serious, you know, kind of in, invasive procedure he had to have done that. Uh, and anything related to the hip can can be scary, but uh, but he looks good. So that's really encouraging. And uh uh, once again, I, I thought it was quite apparent when he first had the injury that it was bothering him. I, I didn't know last year that it, it, it just didn't seem to be bothering him as much. And, and maybe that there was some improvement. Maybe it was just him really toughing it out. But man, if, if he's played this way um, with hip problems and if those are all gone, it'll be really interesting to see how we adjust. I mean, uh, one of the you know, ongoing discussions on the podcast is, uh, me being like, you know what? I don't think he's a great defender. I think he's an okay defender. Uh, Neil, you tell me. No, I he's a he's a better defender than you think. Uh, well, if he's been defending with a bad hip and now it's uh, uh, now it's better, uh, his defense is almost certainly going to get much better, and uh, and therefore you could be you could be right again. <laughs> we will see. The, the 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 few Eric Neil debates are are a highlight of this podcast. True, uh, <laughs> there are a few. So when 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 they're there, we got to milk them. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Tanner Lefevre, regarding summer development, reading recent reports on Daruji and the Russian 2.0. I like that. Uh, do you think it's more or less likely that CMW goes stretches a small ball with Daruji at the five, uh, especially if he wants to jack up the pace? Um, I do, but I, you know I've been kind of preaching to that choir for for a while. So let's get Eric's take. I think that there's just points uh, in, in a basketball game with a basketball team that you are going to just need to get the best five players you have on the court. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that when you look at Daruji, who's 6'7", I think he made, weighed in at 220 this offseason, and he can really jump. I I, I mean, you, you look at some of the fives that, that Florida was playing against, even in the SEC, there was guys that were 6'8 and 240. Uh, so yeah, Daruji giving up some some bulk there for sure. But I, I I don't think he's going to get you know totally abused and 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 I just think that there's going to be times where yeah Daruji is going to command minutes and I think that that would be best off at the four but if Keontae Johnson is playing great and Scotty Lewis is playing great and one of one of Noah Locke and Trey Mann is playing great and Daruji's or sorry and Appleby's playing great um, the place you might have to get Daruji in there is at the five because. I don't see a clear 30-minute-per-game player at the five. The Florida has uh, multiple good players in the position, not a clear, this is your starter, this is your big minute guy. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely think that Daruji is going to get minutes there, and I think it's going to be all about the Gators just getting their best five players on the court. There it is. Um, Malik Grady with Scotty at 6'5", 189. you got to love that Malik's like, give me the Preston season stats immediately. <laughs> Um, I'd love to see him start at the two with Daruji at the four as UF's best lineup. No lie, I think it's Appleby, Man, Lewis, Keontae, Daruji. <laughs> Woo! I love it. <laughs> uh, hey, I think it's really going to be up to um, what is Scotty Lewis as a shooter? Is he the player that 
uh, that really struggled to shoot the ball for the first half of the season and was uh, somewhere below 25% from three-point line? Or is he the player that shot 44% from three in conference play? Um, the answer is probably somewhere in between. But yeah. is that a 37% three-point shooter? Um, or is that a 34% three-point shooter? Because uh, if he's a 34% three-point shooter and, and brings... Uh, brings improved defense because, you know, something I, like I talked about, I don't think he was a stellar defender last year. I think he could be a stellar defender this year, but I don't think he was a complete lockdown guy as a freshman. So uh, let's say his defense does improve. Um, if he's playing really well defensively and shooting 34% of the three-point line, um, you could certainly make a case for him to be the best option at shooting guard. Um, but, uh, you know, if he's shooting 37%, uh, I think you could make a very strong argument that, he brings a little bit more to the table than, than Noah Locke. But uh, uh, it, it, I think to an extent, like Appleby, someone who's going to have the ball in his hands, uh, Keontae Johnson, someone who's going to have the ball in his hands. Um, do you, what do you value more? Someone who might be able to handle the ball a little bit more in that, um, that tertiary role uh, yeah. as tertiary ball handler, or do you value a, a super knockdown shooter like Noah Locke? Uh, I could honestly listen to an argument for, for either side. And, uh, you know, I obviously like, I love Noah Locke shooting and I love what he brought. There's times where Florida had stale offensive possessions and they could just rotate the ball to him and he would catch it at 27 feet and, and rise up and, and hit a deep three. And that was, that was big. Uh, but at the same time, he was, uh, was very poor at using ball screens. He wasn't someone who could attack closeouts. He just didn't bring much ball handling. So the opportunity cost of having him out there as a shooter is, well, you really lose out on any secondary playmaking from that role. Uh, Scotty Lewis, a better playmaker, not a, but still not a great one. But if, if he can differentiate him, himself in, in that area, uh, you can make a, you can make a, you can make that argument that he should, he should start over him. And, uh, or, you know, he, or, or Trey Mann, like, like Malik was mentioning, um, he could, he could bring that uh, he could bring that secondary playmaking that you're just not going to get from either Scotty Lewis or, or Noah Locke. Uh, so hey, I'm I'm open to all different lineups, and um, and I love Malik's, and I love uh, I love him coming in hot with that one. Yeah, no, it's pretty hot. I think a lot of it also depends on Omar Payne and the question I brought up, which is that when all on the floor, how do man and Appleby coexist? I mean, there's certainly a scenario, Eric, where the most effective lineup for Florida is a ball dominant Appleby, Keontae commanding the ball, and Noah Locke as kind of a guy that you use through spacing to, to kind of optimize the ways that he's efficient. And then, you know, your scenario where where it's Trey Mann uh, in, and Scotty Lewis with Trey Mann, right? Because, you know, it kind of, again, Trey Mann can create, and and maybe uh, you keep uh, Scotty in a in a situation where you know he can kind of get points that secondary way, the 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 help out points, the, the you know tertiary as you said, <laughs> a tertiary score because he's never really gonna create on his own. Yes, who can who can chip in as the best quaternary uh, score? Well, that'll, yes. be the next, that'll be our next that'll be next podcast, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I did, I did look at the way that the Gators played last year and, and like I, you know, mentioned a few times, I just don't think they had enough secondary playmaking or ball handling. So, uh, the best way to change that and, and to not run it back. Cause I mean, if we're looking at the starting lineup that I've claimed, I think there'll be the starting lineup that, uh, a lot of other people think it will be and it's, you know, Appleby, um, Locke, Lewis, 
Keontae Johnson, well, that's still not, you know, that's banking on Scotty Lewis and Noah Locke getting better as ball handlers and playmakers, which uh, could be the case. You'd hope as they get older, they do get better. But the way to really change your level of playmaking and ball handling is you switch someone out to someone who's a good ball handler. And, and that could be Trey Mann. So uh, would that shock me if he ends up starting? Uh, no, I, I'm not going to predict it, but I won't be shocked if it happens. Yeah, no, I think it's good stuff. Uh, Morgan Law asked how much, you know, speaking of Scotty Lewis, how much, uh, how much do you rely on Lewis's final three point percentage number here? See, we, we are, eh, I love it when we answer listener questions before we even get them. Uh, is it more of a Lou Dort thing where he was open for a reason? <laughs> hey, uh, don't knock Lou Dort, baby. He made me look like a genius. Uh, maybe. We'll wait one more day and one more podcast before, before I can claim victory on the thunder. <laughs> okay. So so here's, here's my take on Scotty Lewis and uh, particularly his hot shooting end to the season. Lou Dort? Um, yeah. <laughs> First of all, uh, you know, I mentioned before that I was a believer in Samson Rusensev's uh, shooting because I loved his form and I thought it was mechanically sound. When I look at Scotty Lewis, I'm not super (laughs) sold on his his form. I'm not super sold on his really high arc. Uh, I think that it's, it's, uh, it's not a consistent way to shoot the basketball. And I don't have a lot of faith in it necessarily. I, I do. I think it's going to, you know, drop back to the twenty percent it was at the start of the season. Uh, no, not necessarily. But uh, yeah, I, I look at his form and I say, hmm, I, I'm not a not a huge believer in that. Um, let's also look at his number of attempts. So he attempted just over two attempts per game from three uh, in conference play, where he shot forty four percent. Just over two attempts per game. That is not a lot of attempts. Um, especially in modern basketball where players can really let them fly. Uh, For someone who's playing the wing, uh, you often see from that position more like four or five attempts per game, and he's shot just over two. So that's a pretty small sample size. That's 39 shots he took from three in conference play to get to that 44%. Small sample size, another reason to put up uh, not a red flag, but a yellowish tinged flag. (laughs) Uh, You also want to look at... um, uh, 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 you can look at Ken Palm's um, uh, Ken Palm breaks down opponents into like uh, tier a. So it's like, oh, I forget what their, what their breakoff is, but essentially it's like, Hey, who are the, the best teams a team has played in a year and how did a player fare against those, those opponents and against tier a opponents, Scotty Lewis shot 21% from three. So I look at his form. I look at the low number of attempts um, and uh, to a lesser extent, I look at what he did against just, you know, g- the general good competition Florida played. And there are, there are a few things that tell me, no, he is not as good of a three-point shooter as that um, that number suggested. So uh, I, I do not think he is going to be a great three-point shooter next year. But, hey, he could have also gotten a lot better. There's no question. I mean, he got – to see the improvement was still was still great. And, hey, he still shot a great percentage even if it was on a low number of attempts. But those are the reasons why I am a little bit skeptical of him returning. and Or I should say, going back to this initial question, those are the reasons that I'm a little bit skeptical of looking at that conference mark and saying like, hey, um, that's what he ended the season at and that's what I think he is as a shooter. No, no, I just, I can't get there. By the way, Lou Dort was 28 of twenty-eight for 97 in his one season at Arizona State. Oh. From, uh, huh. from beyond the arc. So Lou let it fly, baby. <laughs> he let it fly. Uh and he didn't – I don't know if he ever made three in a row like he did in game six last night, but there was a reason, 
there was a reason he was open. And I think there was a reason that Scotty Lewis was open. He probably won't be as open next year because he shot 44% in conference play. But we'll see. Uh, maybe he'll actually be as open, but for different reasons. Like Florida's better at drawing help defense. <laughs> Is that a hot tick? Uh, Neil Shulman, should Florida ban FSU from its basketball schedule until Mike White is gone because Mike White doesn't care about that game and Leonard Hamilton does? Eric? Uh, I will not comment on the amount of care the uh, coach has for the game. Um, I would I would have to guess that, that White cares greatly about that game and the fact that he has gotten um, embarrassed in it the last few years. Um, I would say he cares a lot about it. Um, so, uh, you know, I... That that would be my take on that, but uh, you know what? Like, I I would not. I, I'm definitely not advocating for Florida to take Florida State off of their schedule. But uh, and again, okay, Florida is not Stanford, but Stanford um, had a. You, they played Kansas for a couple of years straight, and then uh, Kansas wanted to renew the series, and Stanford said, uh, "You know what? This isn't working out for us. Uh, I don't think it's in the best interest of our program to continue the series." and uh, they didn't keep going. I I mean, honestly, if there was any any other name other than Florida State across that jersey, I don't know if Florida would keep going back. Um, so, I, I think it's a this might be ridiculous, but I would say yeah, there's there is a fair point to be made of like, hey, is it is it wise to keep playing Florida State in 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 the non conference portion? Um, especially you know, I'm I'm glad they didn't do this, or, or sorry, I they weren't planning on doing this. I mean, now they. You may never, but, uh, uh, you know, playing Florida state in the second game of the year, like they did last year or playing them in the first game of the year, like they did the year before. I do not think that's wise at all. When you look at the, the way that Florida state puts their teams together and the way that, um, that Florida has put their teams together, though, this would be a little bit of a different year with Florida having some, some older players, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think it, I do think it's worth noting that if there was any other opponent that Florida kept scheduling and it was not going well for them playing in the first week of the season, Florida would look at not playing them. So I do think that's honestly a little bit of a fair thing to say though. I mean, I, <laughs> I do hope Florida keeps playing them and is able to obviously just break the curse. But, uh, and I also would say, Hey, let's, uh, let's not schedule it for the first or second game of the season. Yeah, Shulman did follow that tweet up by saying he doesn't want to end the rivalry. He's only a quarter mm. serious, but I, I thought it was just interesting enough to kind of bring up, especially because Mike White has kind of like been Miami's dad since he got to Florida. Like, like you know how like Ham had that great tweet of, I mean, it wasn't great <laughs> for, for our listeners, but like yeah. of him carrying Mike White around. Like Mike White could do that with Jim Laranega at this point, so. You know, if if Mike was that kind of of petty, I guess. Um, so maybe maybe that would be better. Like Florida could just play Jimmy Bags, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and see what happens there. Uh, let's close with Zach Ward. And and we told you, Eric and I, like breaking the fourth wall. We're like, we have a forty five minute show, and we're gonna go like seventy five minutes, which is you know whatever. Oh man, uh, of course. I, I love it. I love it. Uh, but Zach. Always ask great questions, and, and he's a great one to, to close us down um, on this program. But he says, if I can find it, ah, does the combination of Noah Locke's injury, White wanting to play faster, and the possible second-year leap of man cause man to be the starting two-guard with Locke moving into the six-man role? And I think we've kind of addressed this. Like, I, you know, here's my – maybe I can put it more succinctly 
for, for Eric to kind of contemplate. Um, my main thing is I think we want to optimize the minutes that man is yes. In basketball, modern basketball is get your five best guys on the floor. A lot of the time, uh, modern basketball is also, you want to optimize touches for your best playmakers on particular possessions. And like, so I don't know how much basketball Appleby and Trey Mann should play together. Right. And so if there's a way where, you know, Locke is complementary to both those players, then sure, maybe that makes sense. But I don't know. I mean, for me, how is Noah's hip is really the biggest question because it just seems like Trey is sort of this ideal sixth man. I think that's his role at the next level too, by the way, sixth or seventh man. Well, uh, here's one way I've kind of thought about it, and I'll put it out here. If Tyree Appleby is is really, really good – I think you want Noah Locke out there with him because the other thing about modern basketball is get your best player or maybe your best, you know, pick and roll combination and then surround them with the best shooters you can. That's kind of the way of the NBA building teams. Get your best isolation player or your best pick and roll combo. Um, Get, get a secondary ball handler out there as well as a little bit of a release. If they're going to trap those, those kind of actions and then, um, and then space them around with shooters. So if Tyree Appleby is someone who is going to be a, 15, 16, 17 point per game score and is just electric offensively. And Keontae Johnson is someone who, um, if teams start to, uh, you, you know, start to press up on Appleby, that he throws it to Keontae Johnson, who's going to attack in space uh, or, you know, attract attention that way. And if those two players are are really, really good, I think the best thing you can do around them is get the best spot up shooters and Noah Locke is going to be one of the best spot up shooters in the country. So it makes a lot of sense for him to continue to start alongside those players. But if Tyree Appleby is not great, uh, I think you could certainly make an argument that you're going to need more, more playmakers, more guys you can create off the bounce out there. And therefore, uh, therefore getting managed to the starting lineup could, could make a lot of sense. Uh, so that's something that's, uh, it's kind of, might even be out of out of out of uh, out of no locks control a little bit because yeah if 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 Keontae Johnson continues to be incredible if Tyree Appleby is someone who plays like an elite point guard and in the SEC uh, they're just going to need the best floor spacers around them and obviously that that's lock but uh, yeah if they do have trouble kind of getting offense going and things get stale uh, they they're going to need more creation out there so uh, I I still think Locke is going to be the starter and I think it makes sense but. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's not hard to envision a role where where man is is the starter. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a really thorough and and fair answer. Um, so, you know, uh, what do we close with? You know what I want to close with, Eric? Um, because we cl- we could have closed with 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 Zach Ward, and and that'll close our listener segment, a question segment, and I think that that's important. Maybe let's close with two two things. First, the NCAA has trademarked battle in the bubble. <laughs> uh, encouraging, encouraging. Uh, it means they're at least looking at these uh, these possibilities of of uh, what an NCAA tournament could look like in a bubble, uh, or maybe they have other plans for the bubble. But I, I was kind of thinking NCAA tournament. Um, there's also part of me that's like, eh, they probably could have picked a slightly better name. But hey, maybe those trademarks <laughs> will come. You got to cover your bases. I know. I like it. I, I'm really, I'm still hoping for just a, a plethora of, of bubbles, little bubbles everywhere, man. Mm. Let's, let's do little bubbles everywhere in November. Like, cause 
I'm going to be honest with our listeners. Like I'm going to be a little lost American Thanksgiving week. I have to say that because we have Eric on, on, on the show here, but appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> American Thanksgiving week, AKA feast week, uh, as we Hooper junkies call it. Like that's going to be weird if there's no feast week, man. Like that's going to be hard. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be interesting, and I guess you can see what uh, what football there will be to uh, to wet your whistle. But uh, oh. hey, because because you, we don't actually, you know, because our Thanksgiving is different in Canada and American Thanksgiving, uh, we don't actually celebrate. Uh, it's it's actually turns into my favorite holiday because I don't have family obligations and I can just watch all the uh, watch yeah. all the football, watch all the basketball. So uh, it, it'll be different. But hey, I just. Uh, there just seems to be a lot of growing optimism generally about basketball being played and, and certainly a whole lot of optimism that there'll be an NCAA tournament. So I'm kind of just soaking that in. And if, if it means missing out on some of the, the preseason tournaments that I, you know, that we have all grown to love, uh, that'll hurt. But Hey, uh, if it turns into just conference play, um, there's still going to be a lot of reason to be excited about that. If uh, it seems like they're, I, I mean, I, I feel like portions of the country would have to get blown off the face of the earth for them to not play an NCAA tournament. So for that reason, I mean, it's still going to be like something to look forward to because there is going to be some kind of bracket and teams playing for for a banner and for a Final Four that I'll be able to watch. And uh, yeah, but uh, but I, I do think it's also hilarious. Like what what a modern way to like break news as someone finds the uh, the patent num- uh, numbers for uh, uh, the NCAA uh, trademarking uh, trademarking battle in the bubble and it being kind of an encouraging note about uh, about the sport. So so I kind of wanted to close with with that on a fun note and then on a serious note. I know we don't we don't do this a lot, but since we've gone this long and, and maybe a lot of people have already you know turned us off. <laughs> um, let let me and, and I'm I'm always interested in in your thoughts, Eric. It's uh, part of the the joy of doing the show is getting the the Eric Fawcett takes. But I I did want to say something about about John Thompson um, because I kind of feel like this moment that that we're going through right now in the country with the sport of basketball that, that Eric and I love and that our listeners that are listening to a 70 minute podcast, the first day of September, obviously love this sport. I think he was one of the most important figures in, in basketball, not just college basketball. Um, I think that his, his ability to show that uh, people that looked like him uh, could do coaching just as well as as other people if they were given the chance uh is 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 groundbreaking and was ahead of its time um you know when he got to his first final four uh he was asked uh, by the media um in 1982 he's asked you know what does it mean to be the first black coach to take a team to the final four? And his response is, is really striking for this moment, Eric. It was that there have been plenty of others who could have gotten here. If it had been, if they had been given the opportunity they deserved. And look, I don't care, you know, what your political views are. Uh, You know, I don't care what your position is on, the Black Lives Matter movement, if you think it's Marxist, if you think it's anti-cop, 
I'm here to tell you this. I'm a Christian. Uh, I believe in the commandment, love thy neighbor. Uh, I believe I am from a, a, a family full of military. I am from a family uh, who I have kids whose mom was in law enforcement for a long time. Uh, I know cops. I'm friends with cops. And I'll tell you, if, if you hear the pain that people like uh, Jamal Murray were expressing the other night after he scored 50 points, uh, that people like the Blake family are going through, that people uh, like the family of George Floyd are going through. If you hear that pain uh, and you think it's nothing, then that's difficult for me to swallow. Uh, it's just difficult for me as a Christian to swallow. It's difficult for me as a man to swallow. It's difficult for me as the father of multiracial kids to swallow. And I bring that up now because John Thompson kind of said, look, uh, we need to understand that the whole of society is the whole of society. That, you know, these people have the right to, that, that his people, uh, black people, have the same rights to breathe, uh, to live, to work as, as everybody else. And that all we're asked and all we're entitled to is, is opportunity and respect, which, you know, we can either keep uh, or, or lose. Um, but, but those are, you know, that little bit of dignity is super important. And I'll tell you what, his leadership of the Black Coaches Alliance, um, they, they did things in terms of boycotting games for unfair testing standards, unfair admission standards, unfair hiring practices uh, that forced change um, well before the NBA was boycotting things to, to speak out against social injustices. So I think when you look at somebody that was a trailblazer, somebody that, as Rob Doster put it in his newsletter, Eric, was, was so good at promoting the talent of young black men that people thought Georgetown was a black school. <laughs> uh, it's just important to remember Big John, and I, this is sort of a moment that, that could use him. We could use someone like him. Um, we need more John Thompsons, uh, and, and uh, you know, I hope, he, uh, I hope his family uh, is comforted, and I hope he uh, rests in power. Well, uh, I almost don't want to say anything because what you said was just so amazing. And I kind of wish we could end the podcast on that. But uh, I, I do want to say some things. And uh, first of all, uh, one thing about those those Georgetown teams, and I know I wasn't alive at that time watching basketball, but the, the influence that they had that still when I started watching basketball, um, the coolest thing that someone could wear is like a Georgetown starter jacket. Uh, it was to wear yeah. those colors. Um, and it was part of the fact that um, that teams like that Georgetown team uh, made basketball culture and made basketball culture cool. And, you know, as a you know what, as a Canadian white guy who grew up in the suburbs, uh, it's just something that I have to be aware of is that the fact that I love basketball and I, I cover it is that I am 
borrowing from black culture, but I don't have to pay any of the uh, negative consequences that uh, unfortunately a lot of the black community in, in Canada, as well as the, the United States has to pay. And, uh, you know, just to look into to, to my life here is like when I graduated high school in, in 2011, I was really into playing drums. I was really into music. I spent the first three years um, traveling Canada uh, playing drums and the music I played was jazz music and it was rock music jazz music of course having all of its roots in in black musicians in in the states and and rock music that had its that had its roots in in R&B all black musicians so I was borrowing from black culture even though I maybe wasn't acknowledging it as an 18 year old playing playing rock music and then after that I started to coach basketball got really into writing about basketball and then my life kind of turned into basketball to where it is now and that is largely borrowing from black culture so it's just uh it's something that I just don't want to uh, I don't want to forget that I am someone who uh, is borrowing from a from a rich and incredible culture uh, and uh, from just the 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 blood and the sweat and the intelligence of the black community that has brought just uh, great art forms of music and and as well as basketball and I am just uh, so thankful for it and it's just an honor to uh, to be able to talk basketball uh, because of uh, because of the people like John Thompson that made it is what it is today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's well said. So so rest in peace to him. Uh, rest in peace to Lute Olson. Uh, kind of a tough week for basketball deaths, but I, I really was thinking about John Thompson a lot, uh, and and I wanted to say something on the podcast because this is the medium that we have. Thank you all for sharing that medium with us, and we will be back soon. Good night.